the state of Florida, a missing persons report can only be filed if the person is 17 years old and younger, which constitute as a missing child, regardless if you think they may be in danger or not. 18 to 25 years old for an adult, again, regardless if you think the person is in danger or not. 26 years and older, there needs to be a threat of danger or evidence to prove they are a victim of criminal activity. In 2006, 836, 131 missing persons reports were filed in the United States. That is the high for the early 2000s when contacting someone was becoming easier thanks to the rising popularity of cell phones. The highest this nation's ever seen before that had been recorded just nine years before, in 1997, when over 980,000 reports were filed. Every day, the loved ones of these missing people sit by their phones praying that today is the day they get a phone call to tell them that their loved one has been found, even if it just means it's their body. People are declared dead by the court system on a daily basis. Typically, there's a statute of time that must pass before that can occur. It was 10 years for the Kessie family. Jennifer had been missing for 10 years when a Florida state judge banged his gavel and entered into the system a date of death for Jennifer Joyce Kessie. There wasn't a body to say that she had indeed died. But once the statue had been met, the courts needed to declare her dead. Estates needed to be dealt with, bank accounts acclaimed, and property either needs to be sold or transferred to a person considered living. Jennifer Kessie woke up on January 24, 2006, like any other day. She got up. She got herself ready for work. Her day was going like every other day. She was on a schedule. Jennifer was a person who liked a schedule, who liked a routine. This is what prepared her to take on anything coming her way. She was going to work. Except someone else had other plans that day. Someone else had desires, urges, wants, needs that superseded what Jennifer had planned for that day. Two hours away, Drew, Choice, and Logan woke up with their own plans. They had no way of knowing what was barreling their way until the CFO of Westgate picked up the phone and dialed their number and changed their world. Welcome to the True Crime Librarian. I'm your librarian and host, Ashley. Tonight, we dive into an unsolved case. Jennifer Joyce Kessie was 24 years old when she disappeared in broad daylight without a single witness. Her black Malibu was driven over a mile from her condo. Security footage shows the black Malibu pulling into a visitor spot at an apartment complex just down the road. The person of interest sat for 32 seconds before exiting the vehicle and walking right into the line of sight of a security camera. There should have been a face, grainy, or not that appeared but we stumbled on the most luckiest person of interest in the entire world and tonight we dive into an unsolved case one you all know that is rare here 
on TTCL. Warning, this episode contains adult language. Listener's discretion is advised. Good evening, my true crime nerds. Welcome back after a week off. The Librarian After Dark is over on Patreon and episode two dives into the updates of the West Memphis 3 case. If you haven't had a chance to listen to Dark Shadows in season two of TTCL, I suggest you go do so now before listening in on the update episode. Don't forget, you can still support the show by heading over to www.thetruecrimelibrarian.com. There you can make a one-time donation, or you can head over to Patreon and sign up for a tier that fits your wants. And as always, you can review and recommend the show. Even on YouTube, this helps the show be recommended to other nerds just like yourself. And honestly... I would greatly appreciate it because that means the show's going to continue to grow and I'm going to continue to keep bringing you the cases you want to hear. Now, to what you all came here for, the true crime. Let me introduce you to tonight's case and our victim. First, I want to put this out there as a little disclaimer. If you have any, and I mean any, information that could help find Jennifer Kessie, whether you've heard something pertaining to the case or you know someone personally who knows something, please pick up the phone and call the hotline at 941-201-4009. Anything at all pertaining to Jennifer and her disappearance could help her parents find their daughter. I couldn't imagine being in her parents' position, but I can only hope to be as strong as these two have been for 16 years. Again, that phone number is 941-201-4009. Jennifer Joyce Kessie. She was born May 20th, 1981 in New Jersey to Joyce and Drew Kessie. Jennifer would grow up with her younger brother, Logan, in Tampa, Florida. Before Jennifer and her brother were born, Joyce and Drew were held at gunpoint by a mugger in New Jersey. I'm sure this probably aided in their decision to move to Florida, probably safer 
or at least what they hoped would be safer area to raise their children in. This also led Joyce and Drew to raise their children to be very cautious individuals. So I really want you to hold on to that as we go through tonight's case. These kids were raised to pay attention to their surroundings. Jennifer, she carried mace with her everywhere she went. She called people when she was out by herself. All of this to avoid exactly what she has gone through. Jennifer is described as an, as adventurous, has the ability to light up a room, extremely cautious, has a thirst for knowledge, and extremely loyal to friends and family and very close to her younger brother, Logan. Just looking at her smile in the photos released during the time of searching for her, you can't help but smile back. Not because she has, not because she's the face of this, but because her smile even on paper, is contagious. She's absolutely gorgeous, and she comes across as completely genuine and totally sincere. It's faces like that. It's hard to see on them flyers because she's missing. It's hard to see smiles like her be the face of cases like this. That is what drew me in to this case. How can someone like her go missing? How can someone like her be abducted and no one seen or heard a thing. Jennifer graduated from Vivian Gaither High School in Tampa, Florida. She was accepted. She accepted her position at the University of Central Florida, where she studied for her financing degree. In 2003, she graduated with honors with her degree in financing, and she was also a sister of the Alpha Delta Pi sorority. She had several job offers presented to her when she graduated. In the end, she settled on a position at Central Florida Investment Timeshare Company, specifically Westgate Resorts, as their financial analysis. Jennifer was a go-getter. She set her mind to something and she did it. She completed it. And she did it every single day. Every day there was a goal in mind. By the time she laid her head on that pillow at night, she had a goal, and I guarantee you, she probably obtained that goal, more times than not. She was promoted twice within her first year with Westgate, and she was their star in her field. She put forth the work, and most importantly, she was very loyal, loyal to her position, loyal to her duties, and loyal to the company that she worked for. Jennifer harbored the fortitude to become extremely successful in the world of financing. In 2005, Jennifer met her long-term boyfriend, Rob. The two met in a bar in Orlando, Florida. Rob Allen was in town for a trade show when he met Jennifer, and at the time he was living in Fort Lauderdale. This meant that put three hours of a driving distance between the two of them. But somehow they made it work for them, driving back and forth for three hours every single weekend to spend time with the other. This worked well for them. Jennifer was seemingly happy with Rob, and Rob was seemingly happy with Jennifer. Along with the new relationship in 2005, Jennifer also did a very adult thing. She landed her first home purchase. Mosaic at the Millennia was transforming their apartment complex into a gated community of condos. 
and Jennifer was one in the very early stages of this to purchase a condo. During this time and during this transition, that meant there was remodeling that was going on, which meant there was a lot of construction and a lot of construction workers that were in and out of the community. Often these men gave Jennifer the creeps. She was very adamant about being on the phone when having to walk from her condo door to her car because that's the way she was raised. We're going to revert back to that whole let's be cautious thing. They gave her an unsettling feeling. They were your typical construction workers. You know, they stopped and stared anytime she moved. Sometimes some of them would bravely catcall her. Other times some were crass, verbally harassing her. All just all in all, giving her a very uneasy feeling. And this meant that she felt safest if she was on her phone talking to someone as she made the short walk. But Jennifer also did that outside of the complex. This was a very common thing for her, whether it was driving to work, driving home from work at night by herself. And she was either on the phone with Rob, Drew, Joyce, Logan, or maybe one of her friends, someone that she could talk to, someone that made her feel like she was safe, someone she trusted. And sometimes those conversation consisted of the weather. There wasn't anything to them. But Jennifer was on the phone because she knew that if something happened to her and they heard it, she could count on them to take action and get help for her before it would be too late. This is what I meant by Drew and Joyce raising their children to be cautious individuals. Nine times out of ten, when I walk out of my job, which nine, I, I think it's like a six steps from the back door of my um, library to, to where I actually park. It's not very many steps. It's not in the best of neighborhoods. Um, but I don't think I've ever considered being on the phone with someone. I do know we take steps to not be the only person on shift. We're very small, uh, have a very small staff. So for someone to be left alone during opening hours, that's not uncommon. But for someone to be left alone to the point of closing after dark, that's a rare bird for us. But never have I thought walking from Walmart to my car, walking from the mall to my car, I didn't ever think, you know, I should pick up the phone and talk to someone. And that way, if something happens, if I'm, I'm the one that somebody is after, then somebody will know what happened and they're capable of, of getting the help that I'm going to need. But that's just the way Jennifer and Logan were and the way Drew and Joyce were. She realized the world's a scary place. On January 18th of 2006, Jennifer made a three-hour drive from her house to Rob's house. The two were leaving on the 19th of January. They were going to fly to St. Croix to vacation with a friend and the family. It was a weekend getaway for the couple, something tropical, 
slightly romantic. This is what you see in people of her age, 24. She was 24 years old. Life was nowhere close to being a beginning for her. We were in the very early stages. So finding love, learning to to know this person, vacationing, doing things like this, creating memories is where she was in life. Jennifer made the drive. The two then drove to the airport in Rob's car, leaving her car behind at Rob's apartment, and they flew to St. Croix. While Rob and Jennifer were away, Logan, Jennifer's younger brother, his friend Travis, and their friend Matt, and Matt happened to also be Jennifer's ex-boyfriend. They all stayed at Jennifer's condo. Travis would end up leaving his cell phone at her apartment. And that in itself tells you how early we are into the popularity of cell phones. I lay my cell phone down and it's almost immediately, I'm like, crap, where'd I lay that? We instantaneously know we've we've set some set our phone down and now we got to find it back then they set it down and it could be days before they touched it again you know it so for travis to leave his phone it was nothing out of the ordinary nothing suspicious jennifer and rob were scheduled to fly home on the 21st of january However, their flight from St. Croix was canceled, and the two ended up flying home on the 22nd. This meant that they did not have their day off, which is what Jennifer wanted. She knew she had a long drive back home. She wanted to be able to fly home, make that drive, and rest before having to go to work the next day. However, flying in on the 22nd put her in a little bit of a cramp. It was late. She decided instead of driving home that night, she would stay with Rob and get up early in the morning of the 23rd and make the drive home. Logan, Matt, and Travis, they were already gone from her condo by the time Jennifer arrived. She dropped her luggage off. She got dressed and ready for work, and she was out the door between 7.30 and 8 a.m., like she did every morning. She then drove to work. She had a normal day. Everything was the way she expected it to be. When Jennifer left work at 6 p.m. with her colleagues, that is the last time anyone physically saw Jennifer alive. At 6.15, Jennifer picked up the phone and called Drew on her drive home. This is common. Talk to her mom and dad every single day. She then called and talked with her brother, Logan, told him a little bit about the trip. He let her know, you know, hey, Travis left his cell phone at your place. And she's like, don't even worry about it. I'll find it. And I'm going to throw it in a UPS package. And when I get to work, it'll go out. No big deal. She was going to ship it to him the next day. At 9.57 p.m., Jennifer picked up the phone and she called Rob. The two talked. And Rob admitted later that during this phone call, the two had an argument, but Robert described it as, quote, like any husband, wife, boyfriend, girlfriend, any couple might have, end quote. Drew, Jennifer's father, later tells investigators that 
He knows that someone knocked on Jennifer's door that night. It was a man, but Jennifer chose not to answer the door. For once, she was alone. Smart cookie. Don't do that. If you're alone, you don't know who it is. You know, if it's important, they'll come back later. Or they'll pick up the phone and call you. She didn't answer the phone. Instead, she went back to her bedroom and continued the phone call with Rob. Now, it's important to note right here, and I don't, well, it doesn't necessarily have to be right here, but I'm going to note it right here. Across the hall from Jennifer was an empty condo that was in the process of being remodeled so that it could be put up for sale. Living inside of that empty condo were 10 construction workers. They were harboring down. There's no information about who those 10 people were staying in that condo. It's reported that some of them were probably undocumented as a lot of the construction workers were undocumented immigrants. A lot of them were staying in the vacant condos. Um, it's easy, you know, there's no travel time. You just get up, get dressed, and you go to work. There, You're there. You don't have to get in your car and drive. So you can sleep in till the last possible minute before you got to get up and go. It makes sense. However, what does not make sense is that neither the, the management company for the condo nor the construction company had names and information for the individuals who were doing this. So I'm not saying it's solely the property's fault. I'm not saying it's solely the construction company's fault. It's not. You have no way of proving they were doing what you thought they were doing, I guess. And had this been something agreed upon between those who own the condo and were paying the construction, they could have set up an agreement that, yes, the workers can live in the vacant condos. Once they're completed, though, they need to leave so that we can sell it. I don't know. That may be part of the agreement. I wasn't there. I don't have the contract. I can't say either way. But I can say this is where we're going to hit our first snag in this whole case. We have workers, undocumented. We have workers that are illegal, that are, that nobody knows who is where at this time. We don't know who they were before they came to our country. We don't know what they did. We don't know what they're capable of. This is our first snag. We don't 10 people, 10 men lived across the hall from her in a vacant condo and no one can say not one person they knew for sure was in that condo. That's snag number one in this case. If I'm going to point a finger, that's where I'm going to start pointing. On January 24th of 2006, Jennifer got up like normal. She tore through her bathroom to get ready for work. And I love this because Joyce, when she speaks about Jennifer later, she calls her a bathroom snob or slob. Her makeup, her curling iron, her products, they're scattered throughout the bathroom. She would most times return home later after work, pick up her mess and start it all over the next day. We all know women like this. I am a woman like this. I scatter makeup. I scatter hair products. I don't have a very big bathroom and I make a mess of it all. And sometimes I come home and pick it up. And sometimes I look at it and go, 
well, I'm going to need it in the morning. It just depends on how my day went. So to hear Jennifer be talked about this way by her mom calling her a slough, um, it was a moment of brightness in a very dark case. And to that's one of my things about when I start digging into these cases, I want to know who the person was, who the victim was. I don't want to know what they're remembered by. I want to know who they were. If I can humanize them from a true crime case to the listeners of my true crime nerds, you're more likely to connect with it. And if it's a case that's not solved, you're more likely to find a connection and maybe you know something you didn't realize you knew. That's all I strive for when I bring you the cases I bring you. I want to humanize both people, both the victim, both the perpetrator, because they could be any one of us one day that is being called a monster. It could be any of us one day being called a victim. These are people. They're not stories. I mean, they are, but they're true. Somebody lived through that. And if I can humanize the whole situation, maybe at the end of the day, you will look at true crime a little bit different. Hopefully, it will make you love true crime even more because you want to fight for those who can't fight for themselves. That's what I strive for when I, when I bring a case to you. So when I hear things like this, like Jennifer being a slob, I put those in there. Why? Because you can relate. The other thing that I have a problem with is Jennifer just dropped her luggage at the door. This was not, when you see pictures of the condo, she was pretty much a, a pretty kept together kind of girl, even though she lived alone. But the luggage was by her door for two days. Because it was still there when the Kessies showed up at her condo. It was still there when the police finally showed up. And it was there to be photographed when they finally decided her condo was a crime scene. Jennifer collected her things. She prepared to go to work that morning. She opened her front door. And that's all we know. Turning that knob is the last thing that we know for sure that Jennifer did. Now, typically on every other day, Jennifer would call Rob on her way to work. She was essentially his wake-up call. But that morning, Jennifer didn't call. Rob found it a little strange when he got up, but he didn't, you know, he didn't think it was serious. So he picked up the phone and he called. She didn't answer. He's like, well, you know, she's already at work. So, cool. Talk to her again later. Maybe, you know, she was running late. It wasn't like her to not call, but you can find a hundred things that mean absolutely nothing to give you an excuse as to why she didn't call that morning and why Rob didn't see it as a red flag. When Jennifer didn't show up at Westgate for her meeting at 10 30, 11 o'clock that morning, the resort and the staff called her condo landline and her cell phone. There were no answers. So the CFO personally picked up the phone and called Drew to let him know Jennifer didn't show up. 
and she didn't call in and she's not answering her phone. So I just want to make sure that she is okay. And Drew, he didn't know she didn't do any of that. He thought his daughter got up, went to work and was having a day like any other day. So Drew and Joyce, they immediately pick up the phone and they begin to try to call Jennifer. Again, there wasn't an answer. They call Logan. He calls Travis and everybody loads up in separate vehicles and they make the two hour trip from Tampa to Orlando. And on their way, they are continuing to try and reach Jennifer. And now Drew decides, I'm calling management. And he picks up the phone and calls the management office of the condominium place. Condominium complex. He asks that they go check her parking spot to see if her black Malibu was parked in it. It was not. So Drew begged them, please go to her condo and check on her. So management goes over to her door. They knock on the door. No one answers. Drew begs them to enter the condo and check. This was an emergency. This is not who their daughter was. It was an unwritten law with the Kessie family. Mom and dad call. Doesn't matter your age. You pick up the phone and you let them know you're okay. Even if you can't talk, you still pick up the phone and say, I'll call you right back. And she didn't do that. That's how her parents knew this was bad. Something's wrong. And if she's lying in her condo and she can't get to the phone, somebody needs to go check her. Well, the management company of the condominium complex says, you know, I can't enter the unit unless I have probable cause similar to police because these are no longer apartments. Keep that in mind as well. Jennifer purchased that condo. That condo is her home. She is not part of an apartment complex where they can enter and make sure, you know, you're not living like trash or have people living in your house or, you know, breaking any of the rules. She owns it outright. So the rule, the policy, whatever is they have another employee accompany them into the condo and and drew begs them go find somebody i'll care i'll stay on the line you go find somebody you, you go in my daughter's condo and make sure she's okay so drew's on the phone the entire time well as drew's talking with management joyce is on the phone with orlando pd but with the short amount of time that had lapsed between the last time anybody had spoken to her and to the point that there were signs that she's not answering the phone, she's, you know, nobody can find her, was too little. She had not met criteria to be a missing person just yet. Well, on Drew's side of things, management enters her condo. They don't find anything. Jennifer's not in there. There's nothing jumping out saying that there was distress or there was a struggle or a break-in. Nothing seemed out of the ordinary to them. They had hit a brick wall. Drew had no more ideas of how, you know, how to get a hold of his daughter. And Joyce, she hit a brick wall. They weren't filing 
a missing persons report for just a couple hours of not being able to contact their daughter. Drew and Joyce knew their daughter. Her not answering, not telling anyone where she was going. This is not who she was. Even if she was on her deathbed, somebody would know because that's the way she was raised. Now we have no help. No help from the police. Her car's missing and Jennifer's not answering. Something is wrong and it's really bad right here. This timeline of events of when the, the Cassies, Logan, and Travis get into their vehicle and drive to the condo in Orlando is unknown. Had they paid attention, it could have helped determine when they entered Jennifer's condo and when they arrived in Orlando. And this is going to become a point of interest for this case. Now, security cameras over at a complex called Huntington on the Green. It's about a mile away from Jennifer's condo. They catch her black Malibu pulling into the complex and then parking in a designated spot for visitors. This is at 12 p.m. This is even possibly, this even happened possibly before the Cassies left Tampa and headed to Orlando. The person of interest sat in the vehicle for 32 seconds. This could be for any number of reasons, but the one that most people jump to is they were in there wiping down everything so their fingerprints would not be found. Now, once the POI exited the vehicle, he or she was picked up by a security camera around the complex. And this should be a good thing because they walk right in front of this camera, right in front of it. But somehow... This particular person is the luckiest person alive. The cameras recorded by snapping an image every three seconds. So when the POI walked directly in front of that camera following along a wrought iron fence, their face was obstructed during each snap of the camera. The only thing that we can determine is the pants were light colored, probably a khaki color, and they were wearing a white shirt. A common attire for painters, for sheetrockers, for construction workers who just worked in, on interior work. From that angle and for several different factors, it is determined that this is either a man or a woman that stands five foot three or five foot five. They do have what we would consider as big feet. Some say they believe that because of that attribute, this person is a very young adult. Their feet are almost too big for their body stature. And if this person is a young adult at the time in 2006, it's likely they do not stand five foot three or five foot five anymore. It is likely they have grown since then. So do not take that as a, you know, has to be attribute of a person. It's highly likely that based off their foot size, they could be closer to six foot tall. Now, Orlando police, FBI, technically can't come out and say they believe that they may be at this height today, or they may believe that they can't do that. They can only go off of what 
they are seeing. But when I watch this basic burst of images, the way this person walks is they have very wide step and it's either due to the fact that their feet are abnormally large or because they are trying to return to the mosaic at the millennial quickly. Like they need to get back because they have a job to do. These photos are highly, highly grainy. The other part is during each snap, the bar, the thicker bars of the wrought iron fencing obstruct the face of our POI. You can see that they have a light hair color, a short hairstyle, but not one fucking photo of this person is there a face during the entire time when they drive the car into the complex until they walk off of the property. We have nothing. These photos are going to be up on YouTube. Obviously, you're standing, I mean, most of you are listening right now on YouTube or seeing them. I'm also going to put them up on the discussion page on Facebook. So if you haven't joined that, go ahead and do so now. And when I tell you this is the luckiest person ever, they're the luckiest person ever. Their stride, the amount of ground they covered within three seconds allowed for their face to stay obstructed the entire time they were on the property at Huntington on the green. The entire time. From 1 p.m. to about 3 p.m., the Kessies say they arrived at Jennifer's condo, followed by Logan and Travis, and immediately her family gets to work. Logan and Travis, they go and start knocking on doors in the condo complex, asking if anybody had seen or heard anything that morning, especially those on the ground floor closest to where Jennifer parked her car. In theory, had she been inside of that vehicle at any point when it left her parking spot, those closest may have heard something, something they didn't think was out of the normal, but really was. And Jennifer's little brother and his friend were asking everyone, did you hear anything? Did you hear a scream? Did you hear, you know, a struggle? Was there scuffling? Something, anything to help us find Jennifer. Back at her condo, her mother and father began putting together missing flyers. They called the police, and as of that, that moment, Jennifer still hadn't been missing long enough to fit the criteria to warrant officers to arrive on scene. So they weren't wasting a moment. By 4.30, Jennifer's family and her close friends, they were out on the corners of Orlando streets, passing out flyers that had Jennifer's face and a contact phone number. Their thought, get her face out there, give them a number to where people can call and report if they've seen something. And let me stress this, this kind of take charge is absolutely what should happen when somebody goes missing. From the moment they go missing, the more their face is out there, the, and having a contact phone number or a way to tell somebody about it, that is key in something like this. 
you want to put the attention on the suspect and the victim because if the victim is going anywhere nine times out of ten there's suspects with them their perpetrators there so they're passing out flyers they are doing what they can to investigate her missing they you know they wanted to find their daughter now it should not have been them to do this the Kessies should not have to put something together of this magnitude in such a short manner of time. Trained professionals should have been there helping them put together flyers, investigating the condo, finding the car, and taking the concerns of the Cassie family seriously. I get why there is criteria. People can be inconsiderate when it comes to family calling, and sometimes that puts those family members who worry a lot in a position to think the worst of the worst. I'm not going to lie to you. I am that family member. If my kids don't answer the phone, I'm like, um, I'm going to blow your phone up until either A, I get home and lay eyes on you and know that you're okay, or B, you get home and I lay eyes on you and you know you're okay. You know what I'm saying? Like, don't ignore my phone call because then I'm going to think, the worst of the worst. And, and could you expect anything less of me? This is what I do for a hobby is I talk about true crime with all of you guys. Really? Did you think I was going to do anything else? I'm not that kind of person. But the Kessies should have had somebody there trained. Somebody who knew what questions to ask. They knew how to get information that people don't think is important out of someone. Even if they only came for a welfare check officers should have already been on scene. If they had, maybe they would have seen the importance of not letting anybody into the condo. Maybe they could have tracked down her car and ran it like a crime scene faster. Maybe they could have spoke with neighbors asking those questions and, and getting information that was important. If they would have at least showed up in the beginning, this whole case could have had a different ending. But they didn't. And no amount of blaming is going to change that. So instead, we are going to take a look at this piece by piece and see if there's something that stands out to us. Us, who are fresh eyes on this case. Some of you have probably heard Jennifer's case on another podcast because many of you listen to more than just mine. And if that's so, I hope that between the information you already know and the information I give you today and, and next week, Maybe that'll help us put something together because fresh eyes are always a good thing. Now come 8 p.m. January 24th, 2006, Jennifer had been missing for approximately 12 hours. It had been 12 hours since she disappeared. And Orlando PD officers, well, they're just arriving on scene to her condo. And at that point, they find that 14 people had entered her apartment, had been there in and out, all day long. The only crime scene that could provide information to help in any kind of lead for this case was contaminated by 14 people whose hearts were in the right place and all they wanted to do was to find their person. Now let's look at this from an outside perspective. What could have happened once the police arrived? Each person in the condo 
They could have been separated, probably should have been separated. I don't know if they were or not. I wasn't there. Um, we could have taken their prints. We could have taken a DNA sample. We could have eliminated anything in that home that matched these 14 individuals from being the person who took Jennifer. But at the very same time, any one of those 14 people could be guilty. So could the 10 people across the hall from her. So could the undocumented construction workers staying in unfinished apartments throughout the entire condo complex. We don't know. And now the only crime scene we had anything on, it's been contaminated. But even if we go in and eliminate every single one of those 14 people, we still run the chance that they misinvertently turned the knob a certain way that was almost identical to the way the perpetrator touched the knob, therefore removing their prints and adding the non-guilty person's prints to the door. They could have brushed up against the wall. They could have picked the hair up with their shoe. There could have been a drop of blood that nobody saw, but now has been rubbed clean away from the carpet. Evidence and, and all of that transferring highly, highly likely in something like this. So yeah, I can sit here and I can say the Orlando PD fucked up. I can do that. It's easy. I'm sitting behind a mic in Texas. I can criticize them for the way they investigated this case. However, I'm not trained. I've had like three criminology classes in my entire educational history. Um, I know how to do a grid search. Um, I know the basis of laying down a search for evidence. But as far as what to do in a situation like this, I have no idea. Because you run into so many variations and different factors, this changed this investigation. But I can say, had they showed up when Joyce first called them and were on scene at the condo by the time the Kessies arrived, 14 people wouldn't have entered that condo. Evidence transfer wouldn't have happened. In this case, could have had a totally different outcome. So, why I'm sitting here saying, no, don't blame them. I'm sitting here saying, blame them. What are you going to do? You're damned no matter which way you go. It took them 12 hours for anybody with any kind of education on how to handle this to show up and take their missing daughter, their missing sister, their missing friend, serious. And in that time, Jennifer could be laying anywhere. And if she was and she had life-threatening injuries, 12 hours is long enough to to go from life-threatening to life-claiming, even if they got there. The amount of time it, they did have to save her drastically reduced. Maybe 12 hours was enough for her to die alone and scared and fearful that, that nobody's looking for her. There's 12 hours for any possible witness to forget what happened or to misremember what had happened that morning 
or not realize something of importance and 12 hours later they don't they don't know to track that i can literally have days where i sit down at dinner and go what the hell did i eat for breakfast and for the life of me i cannot remember i walk into a room minute i cross that threshold i'm like shit what am i here for 12 hours is a long time it's a long time when your attention's drawn 872 different ways that day. It's a long time when you've heard over 10,000 words spoken to you that day. It's a long time between morning and evening. It's also a, a long time to allow the person who's responsible for this to not only pack their shit and get the hell out, but also ample time to hide anything any information, any evidence that could lead back to them. 12 hours allowed this person to walk completely free. At this point, Jennifer's car had yet to be found. We're only at 8 p.m. of January 24, 2006. And no one had even realized that the car was only a mile away. Two days later, on Thursday, January 26, 2006, a resident living at Huntington on the green, picked up the phone and called Orlando PD. There was a Malibu matching the description of Jennifer Kessie's car parked inside of the complex in a designated visitor parking spot. Police impounded the vehicle and began an extensive search, hoping to find something, anything that could tell them where Jennifer Kessie was. Jennifer Joyce Kesey has been missing for 16 years. That's 16 birthdays, 16 Christmases, 16 Thanksgivings without her for the Kesey family. Her friends have hit major milestones in life, getting married, having children. And Jennifer was robbed of those opportunities by someone whose desires to have her was worth more than her life itself. Not a day goes by that Jennifer's face isn't seen in Orlando. Not a day goes by that someone out there hits play on one of the many podcasts that cover her case. Not a day goes by that the name Jennifer Kessie isn't spoken. And not a day goes by that Joyce and Drew see a blonde-haired woman in her 40s and hope that when she turns around, it's the face of their daughter staring back at them. And every day goes by that someone 
somewhere, knows something, and they choose to be silent instead of saying the words that could end this nightmare for the Kessie family. Women walked to their cars every night scared of the men that exited the building behind them. They're scared of the person lurking in the shadows waiting for a chance to make a move. Statistics show that women are attacked more than men. Those same statistics say that 92% of women attacked know their attacker. What are the odds to beat that? What are the odds that you will make it to your car tonight when you leave the serenity of life? What are the odds that the person waiting to get you alone is the person you've known and trusted a lifetime and never would have pegged them for being the one to take your life? What are those odds? Join me next week when we take a deeper dive into this case. We look at the theories. We look at the timeline more closely than as presented to you tonight. Everyone wants to have the answer, but none of them are correct yet. One mistake led to 16 years to pass without any answers. Let's help to fight that wrong and close out a case that deserves an answer. Again, if you know anything about the disappearance of Jennifer Kessie, please contact the Kessie Family Hotline at 941-201-4009. And as always, I leave you with one last line. Sometimes, when one person is missing, the whole world seems depopulated. Much love, the true crime librarian.